Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 15, You Are My Son, Understanding Jonathan. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those excited by the anticipated DC Cinematic Universe. In this episode, we continue our scene-by-scene analysis by looking at the Starship reveal. I'll try my hand at music appreciation, we'll break down the dialogue, and we'll try to see things from Jonathan's point of view to empathize and evaluate his parenting. Stay tuned, and let's try to understand Jonathan. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who loved Man of Steel and who loved to chew their food. When we last left off Jonathan revealing the ship to Clark, I said we needed a line-by-line breakdown, but before we get to that, let's just replay that scene and refresh your memory. We found you in this. We were sure the government was gonna show up at our doorstep, but no one ever came. This was in the chamber with you. I took it to a metallurgist at Kansas State he said whatever it was made from didn't even didn't even exist on the periodic table. That's another way of saying that it's not from this world, Clark. And neither are you. You're the answer, son. You're the answer to are we alone in the universe. I don't want to be. And I don't blame you, son. It'd be a huge burden for anyone to bear. But you're not just anyone, Clark, and I have to believe that you were... that you were sent here for a reason. All these changes that you're going through, one day... one day you're going to think of them as a blessing, and when that day comes, you're going to have to make a choice. A choice of whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. Can't I just keep pretending I'm your son? You are my son. But somewhere out there, you you have another father, too, who gave you another name. And he sent you here for a reason, Clark. And even if it takes you the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. Wow. Great stuff. Before we dive into it, did you catch that soft and gentle underscore 
The piano is just lightly conveying Clark's theme during the tender moments between a parent and child. We've heard it before as Martha's soothing words comfort a distraught Clark, and now we hear it again as Jonathan embraces his son. Now, I've said it before, I'm not really a music guy, but I do appreciate film soundtracks, scores, and the art behind it, and I love listening to analysis and the appreciation of such talent by those who are much well-versed in those matters than myself. There's just something appealing about listening to an expert, and along those lines, let me just give my quick recommendation for the podcast Star Wars Oxygen, The Music of John Williams, presented by Rebel Force Radio and hosted expertly by David Collins. That is a fabulous podcast. If you love analysis, if you love music, if you love Star Wars, check it out. So like I said, I'm not a music guy, but even I can recognize the soul of Clark's theme is appropriately Martha and Jonathan Kent. Clark's theme, which could almost be called or considered the Kent's theme, plays in the aforementioned scenes, as well as during Clark's homecoming, when all the sound drops out of the tornado scene and it goes quiet, this theme is reprised, when Jonathan is talking to Clark after the bullies, in the scene where Martha says, nice suit, son, and in the cemetery with the, uh, flashback to Clark wearing a cape as a child. So we see that this theme is tied to the Kents. The solitary piano makes the music intimate, as if we're privy to Clark's private introspection. Clark's vulnerability, his soul, his humility, his gentleness, compassion, these things came from his adoptive parents, and they're integral to his theme. And it's telling us that their on-screen presence makes them practically synonymous with this theme in the score, emotionally and thematically linking Clark and the Kents subconsciously. So while Clark's theme is quiet and peaceful, introspective and yearning, it blends perfectly into Zimmer's Superman precursor theme. The keys build into chords, and then they're backed by building percussion, and then strings, and finally we get that huge swell into the intrinsically American electric guitar, the horns and the full-out percussion and the orchestra for that ever-reaching, ever-repeating, never-ending battle theme for a Superman yet to be. I fully expect a true Superman theme in Batman v Superman, but what we got is still wonderfully evocative of reaching ever higher, of flight, hope, and that never-ending battle, and of course of Superman. It doesn't brand Superman in the way that Williams's brilliant score does in such clear-cut fashion, but it almost presents us with the same kind of searching, show-but-don't-tell philosophy of the entire film to make you, in a sense, feel Superman without telling you he's Superman the way the Williams theme does.
but I've gotten completely off track and uh, musical appreciation definitely should be another show, uh, one which I might need a special guest to address or comment on. You know, I'd love to get some insights into what was or wasn't scored and why, uh, the use of contemporary and lyrical music in places instead of the orchestral music and so on. But as long as I'm on this tangent and I can't resist, let me play a short clip of how Zimmer connected to the Superman mythos and to the score of the film. Secondly, this is an American icon. Mm -hmm. I think it needs to be an American that scores this movie. We were talking about things that actually meant something to me. You know, like a stranger in a strange land, being a... I'm a foreigner wherever I go, even if I go home. You know, I mean, it, it's terrible. I lived abroad for so long that when I go back to Germany and I speak, and they answer me in English because I have an English <laughs> accent. I have no, in, in no language do I have a pure accent. Mm. Uh, my children sound entirely different to me. They say tomato, I say tomato. <laughs> right. yeah. So that thing about belonging, and then there's a part of America, you know, this is where the being a foreigner is a good thing comes in, where you go, hang on a second, I look at the Midwest and I see hardworking, honest people, honorable, honor, humble, humble, they don't get mentioned, they don't get they don't get glorified, glitzed, made into the Kardashians, you know, and they are the real heroes. So that became interesting, you know, that suddenly became interesting. Let's go and celebrate them. Right. Not just for the rest of the world, but for America itself. I mean, the, the thing we foreigners do quite well is hold up a mirror and go, hey, look at this amazing place. You, you know, I want to go and celebrate this. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the problem about, you know, I know how to make a big noise and I know how we're going to do the action scenes, <laughs> but it's the heart of the matter, mm -hmm. you know, which, so it's humble and it has to be simple and it has to be honest. And there's a really fine line between simple and simplistic and between stupid and <laughs> yeah. actually something worth pursuing. Well, that was great. One of the things that I love about this film, as you explore its creative process, is how it completely dispels the myth that Superman isn't relatable. That's exactly how the filmmakers were able to approach this, whether Zimmer as a foreigner or Goyer, both as a stepfather or a new father, and so on and so forth. But that's another show, just like the music is another show. In the context of this show, for this scene, the main thing the music gives us insight into is how central the Kents are to Clark's identity. They are his very soul, the DNA of his character in the way Jor-El provided his biological DNA. I know that it's a common interpretation that Jonathan served primarily to hold Clark back and that it was Jor-El that imparted the character of Superman onto Clark. But I don't think that's a completely fair interpretation. Certainly Jor-El provides significant Superman like motivations and trappings in a series of nice speeches, but character doesn't come from listening to a speech. Character comes from how you live your life on a daily basis, how you prove yourself in the small, the regular, and ordinary. Not just those big dramatic tests. Jonathan and Martha were with Clark for that, and they are the backbone of his identity. But rather than me making these grand and unsubstantiated statements, let's actually get to the material. We're going to get into our line-by-line -line analysis. Let's start with the first one. We found you in this. 
we found you in this. Beneath the barn, covered in a tarp, is something so different in design, it would be difficult to have any illusions of it being anything other than an alien spacecraft or some piece of abstract art. What I mean by that is there have been versions of Kal-El's craft where it could be, and were temporarily construed by the Kents to be, spacecraft of Earth origins, whether the Russians, NASA, or some other human source. Here, Clark's vessel is decidedly alien. Hey, I'm back. This is actually um, the scene where me as young Clark Kent, 13-year-old Clark Kent, is introduced to the StarCraft. For me, filming this, it was really crazy to be able to see how high-tech they actually built this thing. You know, you might think that some of it's CGI, but it was all real. None of that was, a, that was fake, that was actually there. And for me to see it for the first time, I thought that was just epic, because there's never been anything that high-tech for the Starship. When Jonathan goes to get the command key out of his little desk area, that is really something cool to look at because you might not notice it because the scene goes by a lot quicker, but this is actually where he does all of his research about Clark and about alien sightings and, and spaceships that people have seen through the, the years that he's had Clark. Now, we've been steeped in creative commentary thus far, but how about a quick diegetic question? Occasionally, I've heard it raised, how could Jonathan possibly have managed to get the ship down into the barn without assistance? Well, I don't think this one's too hard to put together. We're going to have to do a little bit of math, but I promise we'll use it again later, so it will be worth it. In 2013, Clark says he's 33 years old. That means the Kents found Clark in 1980. Jonathan's marker indicates that he was born in 1951, and that means that he would be a strapping young 29-year-old farmer with an equally young wife around that time. Clark says that he was found in a field, suggesting that Jonathan and Martha had the time and the isolation to hide the ship. Colonel Hardy says that the craft maxes out at 17,000 pounds, which is a little bit odd phrasing, but it suggests that the ship weighs around eight and a half tons. Jonathan says that his family has been farming for five generations, and it is profoundly unlikely that they have just been subsistence farming by hand all that time. They're going to have an agricultural tractor, and that is easily going to have the towing capacity and potentially the lifting capacity with certain attachments to manipulate Clark's ship. So between a young Jonathan, a young Martha, and the farming equipment, there's no question or issue about being able to move the ship into the barn. All right, the next line is, We were sure the government was going to show up at our doorstep, but no one ever came. We were sure that the government was going to show up on our doorstep, but no one ever came. Well, first, let's answer this quick question. Why didn't the government come? In 1980, unidentified flying objects were tracked by an alphabet soup of government agencies, from the FAA to the CIA to Strategic Air Command or Air Defense Command. You'd think someone would detect and investigate and then subsequently seize the ship, right? Of course, for that chain of events to occur, we need that first step to happen. Kalil's ship has to be detected, and there's good reason to understand and to expect that that wasn't and wouldn't be. Why? Because the ship was shielded. We have to remember that Zod was highly motivated to find Kal-El's ship. He believed that it contained the Codex. Zod had the Black Zero's sensors at his disposal, but nonetheless, Zod couldn't find the ship without first interrogating Cal. It is logical for the ship to be shielded from Kryptonian sensors because presumably Jor-El built the ship in secret. So if the ship could and did avoid Kryptonian sensor technology, it makes total sense that it would be undetectable to Earth's sensory technology in 1980. 
Additionally, this would help explain why the Kryptonians didn't pay any particular special heed to the C-17 as it approached, since its payload would not have shown up as anything as significant as Cal's ship. Now, in this line, Jonathan indicates a certain degree of fear and skepticism of the government. Some critics say that those fears are never substantiated or justified, and obviously I disagree. I think that we can find some support for Jonathan's fears in the film itself, but also if we rely on a bit of basic history and common sense. But before we go there, tangentially and exterior to the film, the Suicide Squad could completely vindicate Jonathan's position that the government is not to be trusted. Additionally, their arrest of Lois Lane and their eagerness to use indiscriminate deadly force would also justify his position further. However, one of the best ways to empathize with Jonathan is to take a quick walk through the relevant historical landmarks of his life. So let's do a quick overview and review of Jonathan's life. Jonathan was born in 1951. He finds and adopts Clark in 1980 at the age of 29. He reveals the ship to Clark in 1993 at the age of 42. And then he dies to give Clark and the world more time to be ready in 1997 at the age of 46. In order to understand Jonathan Kent, we have to take a moment to be in his shoes and appreciate the time that he lived in. It may be very easy to take the internet for granted today, but realize that Jonathan Kent is unlikely to have ever used the internet as a part of his daily life. There was a recent Super Bowl ad featuring footage from 1994 of Katie Couric and Bryant Gumbel being mystified by the internet and the cipher that is email. I'm just going to play a part of that ad, and then we'll come right back. Back now at 56 pass, I wasn't prepared to translate that. That's that right. little mark with the A and then the ring around it? At? See, that's what I said. Um, Katie said she thought it was about. Yeah. But I'd never heard it. I'd never heard it said. I'd always seen the mark. There it is. At AM feedback, com. I mean, what is internet anyway? What do you write to it like mail? There's Allison. Can you explain what internet is? Wow. So those are famous, educated, metropolitan, worldly television journalists. They were both born roughly around the same time as Jonathan, and they were seemingly stumped by the internet in 1994 in the heart of New York City. This is after Jonathan has been raising Clark for 14 years in rural Kansas. I am not denigrating Jonathan's intelligence by any means. He has a profound insight into the scope of what Clark's secret means to the world at large. He isn't a country bumpkin, and he doesn't have his head in the sand. But he also doesn't have the same access to information that we can so easily take for granted today. The ubiquity of information that we enjoy today isn't something that Jonathan had access to. Now, Jonathan's limited access to information would logically shape his views on the government and extraterrestrials. The information that he could get would likely come from current events, books, television, film, and other people. And that's assuming that a fifth-generation farmer had the time, education, drive, and so on to pursue all of that. I'm going to say it's a pretty fair speculation to guess that we watch more television than, say, Jonathan ever did. Nonetheless, he was born right when UFOs and alien hysteria entered the American zeitgeist. The Roswell UFO incident allegedly occurred in 1947, spurred on by the 1950s 
atomic age, interest in aliens would continue to swell. We'll come back to that in a bit. For now, let me posit the fact that skepticism about the government is completely in line with the era. By the time Jonathan turned 18, the United States would be right in the middle of the Vietnam War during a roiling time of protests, draft controversy, high casualties being reported on the news, and more. The Freedom of Information Act of 1966 would have started to kick in and bear fruit, revealing what happens behind the closed doors of Washington, bringing to light corruption, scandal, and illegal actions. The FBI and Hoover's dirty laundry was aired. This reached even to the highest office in the land. We had Watergate and Nixon's resignation, further disillusioning the public. Through the 1980s and the 90s, there was a surge of anti-government sentiment and skepticism fueled by a decade-long farm crisis in the Rust Belt, soaring unemployment, and resentment over the outsourcing of jobs. People did not view the government as benevolent as they once did. Jonathan's skepticism about how the authority might react to Clark was exactly what America thought at the time. According to Gallup, public trust in the government plummeted to 25% in 1980, when Clark was found, and it was as low as 17% in 1994. Individuals like Anita Hill and Jennifer Flowers became etched onto the national psyche. It's in that climate in which a normal and relatable American is viewing government. Now let's consider popular culture surrounding extraterrestrials during Jonathan's life. In the 1950s, extraterrestrials tended to be hostile horrors. We had The Thing, The War of the Worlds, Gort from the day that the Earth stood still, and so on and so forth. Just before the Kents discover Clark, we have films like the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Ridley Scott's horror film Alien. When Clark is just two years old, E.T. is a phenomenon, the highest grossing film for the next 10 years until Jurassic Park. And while that film portrays E.T. in a positive light, the veracity of the government's pursuit of E.T. would only solidify Jonathan's fears as to how the world might react to Clark. Clark's childhood in the 80s would have been filled with aliens, predator, they live, and as we enter the 90s, the Men in Black comic book, which would lead to the 1997 film. In 1992, the alien autopsy was a television event, and The X-Files made its debut in 1993. It is in this climate and this setting where Clark was caught by his classmates exhibiting paranormal powers, and this is the reality in which Jonathan seeks to protect Clark with caution. That lack of information helps us understand why Jonathan advises people to go to the overpass during the tornado scene. If you didn't know already, heading to an overpass during a tornado is generally inadvisable, and the U.S. Weather Service was actually upset with Man of Steel for perpetuating that myth. However, we have to acknowledge what them being upset about it means. The reason that they're upset is because, to this day, people believe that that is where you're supposed to go during a tornado. So it isn't unrealistic for Jonathan to earnestly believe in something and act upon it as if it were true, even if it isn't scientifically or statistically advised or sound. He can't be blamed for his adoption of that misinformation because the incident occurs in 1997 and just six years before a trusted KSN 
TV news report popularized by way of video the myth of overpass safety during a tornado. That myth persists to this day. I don't think that it was intentional on the part of the filmmakers, but nonetheless, these apologetics work to explain his advice. Even if it isn't what people should do, it is what people actually do. The scene is, in that sense, authentic. If Jonathan had spent a lifetime doubting conventional wisdom, he might have discovered differently, but as a farmer and an everyman, it's entirely reasonable that he'd be inclined to believe the popular myth. Now, whether the filmmakers had a duty to investigate and provide accurate information contrary to what the everyman would do, that's a separate and interesting question, but beyond the scope of this podcast. So the next line we've got is, This was in the chamber with you. This was in the chamber with you. We'll cover Jor-El's intentions more thoroughly when we get to his reunion with Kal-El, but what the command key signifies is that Jor-El did intend to speak with Cal one day, just not before Kal-El had been raised human and adopted their world and people as his own. Those intentions are doubtlessly encoded into the command key itself, preventing it from doing anything with the ship. I'm sure in the 13 years that Jonathan has been raising Clark, and in the years following, both Jonathan and Clark have tried inserting the command key into the ship. And I'm sure nothing happened because nothing was intended to happen. Not until Clark brought the command key to the scout ship. From Jonathan's perspective, this object, whatever it is, has significance and importance as the only object in the chamber with Clark. From our perspective, it also highlights for us that there is something important and interesting about this command key and that we should keep our eyes on it. The next line is, I took it to a metallurgist at Kansas State. I took it to a metallurgist at Kansas State. We already talked about Jonathan's limited access to information, and in episode 13, we talked about how the walls were papered with Jonathan's attempt at investigating extraterrestrials on Clark's behalf. This is a father who cares, who's looking for answers to the questions that he knows his son is going to have. He's going out of his way to address these things. Now, a few bits of trivia that may arise from Jonathan mentioning Kansas State. Kansas State does include a focus on agriculture, bioengineering, and metallurgy. Kansas State is located in Manhattan, Kansas, and Jonathan may have taken the command key there because of convenience, which would suggest that Smallville is close to Manhattan, or because of personal knowledge or connection to Kansas State, suggesting that Jonathan may have attended or perhaps received a degree from Kansas State, or he may have went there for their expertise in metallurgy. If it is for geographical reasons, we may be able to further place Smallville when we consider that later in the film, Clark is wearing a University of Kansas shirt. The University of Kansas is located in Lawrence, Kansas, and focuses on engineering, fine arts, and law. Even more interesting is that the University of Kansas's school colors are blue, crimson, and gold, or blue, red, and yellow, Superman's traditional colors. It has been suggested that Clark wearing the University of Kansas shirt is a subtle indication of him trying to get away from his father's alma mater and their five generations of farming. So the next line, it says, He said whatever it was made from didn't even, didn't even exist on the periodic table. That's another way of saying that it's not from this world, Clark. And neither are you. He said whatever it was made from didn't even, didn't even exist on the periodic table. That's another way of saying that it's not from this world, Clark, and neither are you. 
We can talk about materials being on or off the periodic table. Uh, I don't think I'm going to do it now or here. What I'd like to focus on is that these lines obviously take their cues from Superman Earth 1, Volume 1, written by J. Michael Straczynski, often called JMS. In Superman Earth 1, Volume 1, there is a sequence where the Kents are revealing to Clark his origins, and the scene reads as follows, This was all that we were able to rescue from the crash. I'm afraid it's not much. I have always told you that you were special, that you had to be careful in hiding your gifts from the world, but we didn't tell you the rest. I had a friend of mine from my days in the army send me a piece of this to a lab in New York. They assumed that we had sent them pieces of a meteor because the composition of the metal shavings is, well, they're not from this world, Clark. They're not from Earth. You're not from Earth. So you can see the parallels between that scene in Earth 1, and then the scene that we're discussing now. Uh, Man of Steel takes many of its cues from Earth 1. Immediately following this scene, there is uh, Clark is being bullied. Earth 1 also has a pretty significant Gethsemane type scene where Clark is a reluctant hero. There is a strong military presence in Earth 1, and an alien invasion results in the issuance of a ultimatum where Clark has to reveal himself, and they cause catastrophic damage to draw him out and Clark's spaceship plays a key role in ending the enemy threat and it also ends with Clark joining the Daily Planet. I enjoyed Earth 1 uh, but surprisingly I don't like it nearly as much as Man of Steel despite all these parallels and it's mainly for two reasons. Uh, one is that the villain doesn't really speak to me and the other reason is that in Earth 1 Clark doesn't want to be Superman. And within the realm of that story, it's a sensible uh, and logical uh, approach. But in Man of Steel, Clark can't wait to help people. He's chomping at the bit, just waiting for his moment. Uh, nonetheless, Earth One is uh, still worthy of being checked out. So it may be something you want to look into, especially since uh, Volume 3 uh, just dropped. It is one of the best-selling DC graphic novels, so it may be something you want to check out just to have a full appreciation for one of the more popular works in the recent modern Superman mythos. Whether you like it or not, that's completely up to you, so don't worry about that. Another popular print comic from which Man of Steel draws many of its cues is Birthright, written by Mark Wade. As applied to this scene, Jonathan's study and research into the extraterrestrial in Man of Steel was private, but in Birthright, Martha Kent embraces it all and its accompanying lunacy. You sort of have that X-File-ish, conspiratorial, I-want-to-believe poster, as you might see in the X-Files, an alien pastiche everywhere. I'm not entirely entirely sold on that particular idea because it feels a little vaguely discriminatory. I recognize that it's done entirely in fun and for love, but perhaps it's a little like saying you love a foreign culture and then you paper your walls with nothing but stereotypical portrayals of that culture. That said, it may serve as valuable camouflage for what they're doing. I don't know. Uh, I don't really take a strong position on it. I haven't read Birthright in a while. Uh, maybe if I revisit it, I will uh, revise my opinion. Um, but between the two, Earth One and Birthright, personally, my opinion is Birthright is a better story for answering the whys and the hows of Superman uh, than Earth One. So next we have a big line. We have, You're the answer, son. You're the answer to Are We Alone in the Universe? You're the answer, son. You're the answer to Are We Alone in the Universe? 
It's a big question. It's phrased big because Jonathan has been anticipating this day and this revelation to Clark. So he's thought about these things. He's run over these words and these ideas in his mind. Perhaps he's even rehearsed a little bit of it. The import and the impact of what intelligent extraterrestrial life means is well beyond the scope of this episode, this podcast, and the film. But Jonathan firmly believes that the information is going to change everything. He says humanity's beliefs and their notions of what it means to be human. What's interesting, though, is that Clark isn't merely proof that extraterrestrial life exists, which in the minds of some could act as a challenge to certain religious precepts. Clark's existence proves that intelligent life in the universe is remarkably similar to humanity on Earth, and that such similarity defies our current scientific understandings about the origins of life. Now, we could continue to discuss the Fermi paradox and the Drake equation and other philosophical questions presented by extraterrestrials, but that's not this podcast. So, heading on to the next line, it's I don't want to be. And I don't blame you, son. It'd be a huge burden for anyone to bear. I don't want to be. And I don't blame you, son. It'd be a huge burden for anyone to bear. Now, it goes without saying that Clark doesn't want to be the fulcrum of these profound questions. He wants what every kid wants. He wants acceptance, belonging, normalcy. And before this revelation has completely sunk in, Clark is already feeling these things slip away. How does Jonathan respond? Does he tell Clark to suck it up and get over it? No, Jonathan answers with compassion, sympathy, and protectiveness. He empathizes with Clark by acknowledging his feelings, but he doesn't sugarcoat it. You know, irrespective of how Clark feels and what he wants, it doesn't change reality, and Jonathan doesn't shy away from the truth. He remains truthful, and he acknowledges the weight of the revelation as well. But he hears Clark's feelings. You know, to an extent, we can't help our feelings. That initial and instinctual flush of emotion when we're provoked, we may be able to channel our feelings and our actions afterwards, but a good and wise parent doesn't tell a children to stuff down, repress, and ignore those initial feelings which can't be helped. A good parent doesn't tell their child to pretend those feelings don't exist, but instead they help the child to cope and deal with their emotions in a healthy way. And that's exactly what Jonathan proceeds to do in the next few lines. He begins to help Clark cope. Jonathan never blames Clark for his feelings and emotions, and we'll see that again in the bullying scene. That emotional wholeness and transparency is part of the reason why Clark is a good person, why he's raised right, and he's able to be genuine with Lois and be bold with Swanwick. And as far as I can tell, Jonathan and Martha never lie to Clark. Now, in some traditions, that is in part because Clark's superhearing allows him to act as a living lie detector, but here we have no reason to believe that it is anything but their character as people and as parents that cause them to be so truthful and honest. So then Jonathan says, But you're not just anyone, Clark, and I have to believe that you were, that you were sent here for a reason. But you're not just anyone, Clark. I have to believe that you were, that you were sent here for a reason. Now, before we break down this line, I just want to make a note about Costner's performance. Costner repeats portions of his lines. Uh, here he says, that you were, twice. 
He does it here. He does it in the preceding scene, and he'll continue to do it. He doesn't do it in a way that comes across as a stutter. Instead, the repetition makes the lines feel more improvisational and genuine. He repeats the lines to give them more time and space, weight and emotion, and to make the words his own. I suspect this is Costner bringing his touch to the table rather than Goyer's explicit script, only because he seems to be the only actor primarily using this rhythmic repetition technique rather than it showing up in the other characters as well. Now, if it is in Goyer's script and the affectation is specific to Jonathan intentionally, then I apologize for my erroneous attribution, but for now I'm crediting Costner with the sincerity of his scenes. So encapsulated in these lines are two powerful things that Jonathan is imparting onto Clark in order to help him cope with the burden of the answer. First, he's telling Clark that he's special, that Clark isn't just anyone. Yes, it will be a huge burden, but Jonathan is saying that Clark is up to the task. And second, he's instilling into Clark his hope and his belief in a purpose. One of the central questions of identity is purpose. Why and what we live for, how and why we spend our time, and who we are can all come from our purpose in life. Having a purpose or a reason motivates the actions towards that goal. We can think of all sorts of different examples where it takes work or effort or something that is a trial or difficulty, which we undergo willingly because we're trying to achieve a purpose, a reason, or a goal. Now here, Jonathan doesn't know what that reason is, but he has faith that it exists. In the next line, All these changes that you're going through one day, one day you're going to think of them as a blessing. All these changes that you're going through one day, one day you're going to think of them as a blessing. Jonathan acknowledges that Clark is undergoing changes. It's easy to assume that he's referring to Clark's powers, but the changes could be referring to puberty, uh, the revelation of his origins, so on and so forth. If it does refer to the powers, it's suggesting that Clark didn't grow up experiencing his full complement of powers, and that is entirely consistent with him later discovering the ability to fly, even if the potential was perhaps within himself at an earlier time. If it refers to puberty, well, we've already discussed the bar mitzvah idea in episode 13, but even if Clark wasn't an alien from another planet with extraordinary powers, coming of age is a significant time and period of change for anyone. And if it refers to the origins, Jonathan may be speaking about the adjustment to knowing his secret. But Jonathan again comforts Clark by sharing his hope that Clark's present is for a future purpose. Steel isn't generally found in nature. It's an alloy of iron and carbon arising from smelted iron ore, which is refined by heat and pressure to achieve a material with greater strength, utility, and character than its original parts. The trials and the tribulations that Clark must face only refine him into a man of steel capable of withstanding testing, being strong, holding up under pressure, and so on. So in the next line, And when that day comes... You're going to have to make a choice. A choice of whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. When that day comes, you'll have to make a choice. A choice whether to stand proud in front of the human race or not. The idea and theme of choice has risen again and again, and it highlights how good a parent Jonathan is. Jonathan doesn't know the reason that Clark is on Earth, so he can't give him that reason or purpose. But he does give Clark interim reasons, milestones, and purposes to achieve on his way to his final purpose. Jonathan has already urged 
hope, and patience as Clark undergoes the trials of today until they can be turned into blessings. And here, he's promising it as preparation for that great day that is coming. Jonathan doesn't say that if that day comes. He says when that day comes. He's making Clark's trials immediately applicable to helping Clark make that eventual choice. Moreover, he's placing the responsibility and the choice in Clark's hands. Jonathan doesn't say, you will stand proud. Instead, he puts it as something that Clark is going to have to aspire for, to be a man of character until that moment so that he can make that choice and be proud. Note that while Jonathan doesn't take the choice or responsibility away from Clark, he phrases it in a way where the preferred outcome is clearly suggested. Jonathan wants Clark to be proud before humanity. Jonathan didn't say, a choice of whether to protect your secret from humanity or not. Jonathan's choice of phrasing delicately implies a desire and purpose for Clark and shows that it was always Jonathan's intention that one day Clark would stand proud before the world. We will see the same kind of approach with Clark's biological father, Jorel, when they speak later. And as long as we're speaking about Jorel, imagine how happy Jorel would be to know that Jonathan was the one to adopt and raise his son. Jorel hoped and dreamed of a child who would not be constricted by societal expectations and who would be raised with great aspirations. Jorel risked so much on the belief that Cal needed to be raised to have a choice, to be free, and to forge his own destiny. And as a father, Jonathan lives up to Jorel's expectations. Jonathan instills into Clark great aspirations and dreams, but he doesn't dictate Clark's destiny. He merely equips him to have a great one, exactly as Jorel had hoped. Can I just keep pretending I'm your son? You are my son. Can't I just keep pretending I'm your son? You are my son. These lines are the heart of the scene and of their relationship. Even if you understand nothing else, the audience has to take away this moment. I know that I denigrated sound bites and slogans in episode 13, but if you have to sum it all up without thoughtful analysis, then this is exactly the kind of soundbite that hits home and elegantly accomplishes its goals. Aside from the performances and the direction, one of the reasons that this scene speaks so truthfully is because David Goyer was a stepfather himself, and his writing of these father-son scenes were informed by his own relationship with his young stepchildren. Now, as much as I have praised Jonathan's prior lines for the purpose and the intention behind them, you have to think about them from Clark's perspective. He's a young 13-year-old boy who's afraid that his secret got out afraid of how different he is, told that he's an alien, and now his father is talking about someday revealing all of that before the whole world. Those are lofty and heady goals well beyond him as he is now. Clark just wants to go back. Clark is scared, and he feels alienated enough to believe that he's only been pretending to be Jonathan's son. Jonathan immediately shuts that down. He embraces him and affirms his sonship. Even the most dense viewer or hostile audience member has a hard time suggesting that Jonathan doesn't love Clark because of this moment. 
Note too that despite learning all this, Clark wants to be Jonathan's son. He loves his father. This dispels any misplaced theories that Jonathan shamed or abused Clark by protecting his secret. It's interesting that the only two characters that use the word love in the film are Jor-El and Zod. Jor-El says it when he's explaining why he couldn't come to Earth with Cal, and Zod presumes it when threatening the lives of the family in the train station. Love is something more proven and demonstrable by actions and attitudes than words. Much like character, it tends to be proven through a course of continual commitment more so than grand gestures. As I said before, Jonathan and Martha were with Clark every day. They had to overcome the challenges of raising an extraordinary child with with different abilities, special needs, and under the constant fear that he would be taken away from them after he had become their son. They had to learn to discipline a child who was stronger and more powerful than them. They had to learn to speak to a child who might be able to discern if they were lying. They had to learn to speak around a child who might be able to hear everything and anything they might say. They had to teach a child to control abilities that they would never have, senses that they couldn't experience, and to show character and restraint with incredible power. And despite all this, they raised a good boy, to the best of their ability, with love, and who loved them back. They were making it all up as they went along, but they managed to teach Clark to focus his senses, and they managed to raise a man with the character to willingly sacrifice himself for the sake of others. But somewhere out there, you... You have another father, too, who gave you another name. And he sent you here for a reason, Clark. But somewhere out there, you've got another father, too, who gave you another name and who sent you here for a reason, Clark. Now, Clark's ability to picture the island on the ocean shows that he accepts the vision that was given to him by his parents. Now, here, Jonathan paints a picture of a future where Clark learns of his reason and his purpose for being sent to Earth. Jonathan instills a hope into Clark that one day he may meet or know that other father, know his other name, know his place in the universe, and know others like himself and not be alone in that regard. Jonathan's hope is a matter of faith. It's something that he doesn't know and can't be certain of, but it isn't a blind faith without a rational basis. From his perspective, Clark's parents sent him alone to this world, and that's not something people do lightly, arbitrarily, or without reason. So Jonathan's hope that those reasons may one day come to light isn't a senseless belief. Jonathan makes this entire moment about Clark because he doesn't say his unspoken fear that Clark's hope of finding his people could lead to the heartbreak of Clark leaving him and Martha. As good parents, Clark's happiness comes before theirs. And then we come to the last line. And even if it takes you the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. And even if it takes you the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. Jonathan releases and excuses Clark to find that happiness, to pursue that hope for his own sake. There is a jealous and protective part of every parent that doesn't want to let go of their kids, to always hold on and always keep them for themselves. But here, Jonathan gives Clark a call to independence and maturity, to actually do something for himself, to search for the answers wherever they may take him and however long it may take him. Jonathan already foresees the possibility that this quest might take 
a lifetime. However, he blesses Clark to do that. This commission could be construed as a curse if the answers weren't out there and Clark was damned to a lifetime of searching for the unanswerable. But Jonathan believed, hoped, and had faith that Clark would learn the truth. And it turns out that Jonathan was right. Jonathan is a hopeful and optimistic figure. He simply doesn't sugarcoat the endurance it may take to get the answers. At this point, Jonathan and Martha have been wrestling with Clark's secret alone for 13 years, so it was important for him to express to Clark that this may be something for the long haul, something that takes the rest of your life, so that Clark does not expect immediate answers or grow impatient or frustrated easily. And that's one of the reasons I really love and appreciate the characterization in Man of Steel, because Clark had to undergo such a long and lengthy crucible to become the hero that he is. To me, that is much more likely to forge someone with the strong character of Superman than a more idyllic childhood or being preached at in a cave. These lines make it clear that Jonathan had greater expectations for Clark's purpose in life. However, there is a clear difference between knowing that somebody has a great calling and saying that now is the time to do it. We already discussed this in episode 13, but waiting is completely consistent with being a good parent. Training your 13-year-old to be a vigilante is not. That would be, to be frank, insane. Yet it is amazing how many people condemn Jonathan for not training Clark to be a colorful, costumed superhero in a world where that doesn't even exist as a concept, when it is already insane in a universe where it does exist as a concept, namely ours. Even if your kid is destined to be a firefighter or a soldier, you don't start putting them in the peril of actual fires or actual warfare. No, instead you do everything in your power to ensure your child's safety, and then you may help to train them in general tools applicable to that destiny. For example, physical conditioning, or self-discipline, or bravery. While Clark would not be in physical peril, his danger is the exposure of his secret. So it would be irresponsible parenting to jeopardize Clark's secret for the sake of training him to help people. Instead, the Kents equipped Clark to focus his senses, to restrain his power, to have compassion for others, and to keep his own secret. They gave him the tools to be a hero. The ability to keep his own secret allows him to remain a part of humanity, to be connected to it, and maintain his compassion for the world and his desire to help it. Now, if we use the gospel as a parallel, Jesus's adopted father Joseph was aware of his son's higher calling, but he didn't push Jesus into it before he was ready. Instead, he imparted what he could and what he knew. Why was Jesus a carpenter? Because Joseph was a carpenter. Why is Clark considered a farm boy? Because Jonathan was a farmer. Jonathan taught Clark how to farm, and through it, he taught Clark the ethics and the values of a farmer. A farmer has to make wise and prudent life and death decisions in the here and now for things that affect the distant future based on a mixture of hope and faith, experience, tradition, and the wisdom of one's elders. This drives maturity and decisiveness, planning and deference, humility and action. You learn how important your individual actions are to the harvest, but you also learn humility in the face of nature, time, and the unexpected. You must do your part to prepare and to plant, but have faith and hope that your efforts aren't going to be undone by the storm, drought, or the market. You rely on actions over words because the harvest can't be tricked, outsmarted, beguiled, 
or debated. You learn patience, believe in growth, and understand error, failure, and trying again. And out of this, we can easily understand that a young, but decisive, mature, proactive person of character who hopes to do good can arise naturally from a farm. Hi, it's Alex again. Um, to talk about uh, the farm, the Kent family farm, and, and how that came about, we were looking for a, a classic Midwestern farm, and we actually found it. Uh, but it was in the wrong place, it was in the wrong landscape. Uh, so we actually considered putting it on the back of the truck and moving it, but at the same time we had found another farm without a farmhouse. And so what we did was look at the farm house that we found 30 miles south and recreate it completely in this beautiful farm in the right setting that had an empty space where the farm house itself had burnt down. So the the important thing with the Kent family farm, first of all, is to establish in this perfect quintessential Midwestern American landscape. Um, and part of that is not only the farmhouse itself and getting that right and the time it takes to build that, but to get the landscape to look right as well. Um, turned out the farmer was planting soybeans. Um, so we had to persuade him instead to plant corn and we had to plan that far enough ahead in the right cycle um, of, of the season so that the corn would be at the height we needed it to be uh, when we actually got to the set. Now quickly, for some larger context, all of this that we've discussed was all a flashback. So we know from the preceding scenes that Clark doesn't have his answers yet. Byrne says, where the hell did they find you, Greenhorn? Suggesting that he doesn't have a history with the Debbie Sue. And that he's fishing means that he hasn't found his great calling because it's unlikely that he was sent to Earth to be a fisherman. That he needs to take the disguise means that he isn't ready to stand proud before the human race yet. But now, all of Jonathan's hopes have been imparted to us, the audience, and having that context, it makes Clark's frustrations in the next scene all the more human and relatable when he clearly isn't living out those hopes. If we go even further back, we started the film on Krypton, where Jor-El conveyed almost a sense of royalty or nobility in a caped culture wearing ceremonial armor having the ear of the highest council on the planet riding upon a flying steed and able to do battle this father sent kal-el with all his hopes and his dreams and this father who seems unbridled and unrestrained readily ignoring societal convention bucking their beliefs and breaking the laws to do right we know all of that is pent up in clark's blood but having seen jor-el be killed and krypton die we wonder if jonathan's promise could ever come true and that's the setup for our next scene as we return back to present day and that's where we're going to end this episode's commentary until next time you're the answer son <laughs> The, the, the question of how Superman came to be the way he is and what a sweet gift it was to be offered the chance to fill that role. I mean, parenting to the 15th power, I mean, in a way, super mom, super dad, no pressure. <laughs> it was much more about protecting the young man from his own demise because of his capacity, which is otherworldly. So, as Dad does so well in the film, teaching him how to dial back and use good judgment when you have that much power, because everybody wants to know 
what took you so long and why did you finally come out in your suit and do this for the world? Well, I think yeah, you have survival instinct for your son. I mean, I, I don't even, having not seen the movie, I don't even know, even when I ask him to lie a little bit about like, let's go fishing. We don't have to tell mom. I don't know if that's still in the movie or not. After he's in a bullying, been bullied, uh, you know, I feel like maybe he and I should go somewhere else and just hang out the rest of the day. I don't even know if that made the film, but those things aren't so pure. I mean, you know, which is, and listen, we don't have to tell your mom about this. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And that was a fun idea. So I, I, I think that we weren't otherworldly parents. We Your were just what we know. A learning curve. We and... were, this kid has to take out the trash and has to mow the lawn. And by the way, you know, he's got an edge too. You know, it's just a, a man's value is, is his worth. And it starts with how do you contribute in your own family? And all this stuff arms him later. And it will arm every boy and girl for as long as this earth keeps spinning, how they grow up. That was an interview of Diane Lane and Kevin Costner with Access Hollywood, which gives us a little insight into how they approached their roles. I love the idea of Jonathan spending time with his son fishing. Recreational fishing can be contemplative, meditative, and simply quality time outdoors. It can teach patience, careful control of one's strength, and it's a great father-son all-American activity. In the children's book, Man of Steel, The Early Years, we see an exclusive image of nine-year-old Clark holding a rod while Jonathan is beaming next to him, holding up the bass that they've caught. In the book, below it, is the picture we see in Martha's photo album of Clark holding up his medal at the science fair, with Jonathan proudly behind him, and the photos are captioned, Clark and Jonathan share a special bond. The deleted scene referenced by Costner in the interview places the scene at age 13 after Clark is bullied, and I like the idea that it's an activity that they shared together Clark's entire life, a time to bond and to talk. That said, I can understand cutting it from the film for a few reasons. First, it may have simply been cut for time in a film that's already running over two hours. Second, as Costner points out, it is a lie, and it does exclude Martha. It's a retreat from reality, and all of those things are human and forgivable, but there is a certain pressure to err on the side of infallibility when given a choice when you're dealing with that Superman mythos. I'm not saying that I agree with that, but I can see the justification for cutting out things that are arguably unnecessary foibles. Third and finally, it may have been cut as a concession to Birthright. As we discussed earlier, Man of Steel does borrow cues from Birthright, and one of Mark Wade's innovations in that story was to suggest that Superman's aversion to killing stems from his ability to see life leaving a dying creature. And his aversion is so strong that Wade's Superman is a vegan. In other words, that Superman would never catch, kill, or eat a fish, or any other animal. Even apart from Birthright's explanation, there are some detractors against fishing, period, so perhaps it's just another controversy dodged. Indeed, in Man of Steel, the only thing that we see Clark consume is beer, which, in most but not all cases, is vegan. So we don't know if beef bourguignon or fish filet is off the menu. But this may go back to that tabula rasa idea we raised back in episode 12. Until you're told otherwise, you're free to interpret this aspect of Superman any way you please. Of course, there is still more to get into with Clark's parenting and questions about Jonathan, but we will revisit this topic again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. All right, I think I've rambled on long enough. 
Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network. So here are some promos for the network shows that I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, The Carousel Herald Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from SupermanHomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At SupermanPodcastNetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener. And I'll hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got a question you want answered or insight you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you've heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. Answer, son.